Acts chapter 13. We're kind of in the middle of a long story here. It's about Paul's first missionary journey. You remember that Paul and others were in the church in Antioch and that the Lord spoke to them. The Spirit said, set apart from me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And then they added John Mark to the group. And of course, Luke is accompanying them too. So they formed this little missionary band, we're calling it, right? And they started out on their very first missionary trip. And then you might remember from last week that John Mark left the band. The band broke up. And uh, we talked about what it's like to be deserted and how that relates to our relationship with Jesus. And now they're continuing on their first mission trip. And we see them today going into a place called Pisidian Antioch, which is like in modern-day Turkey. So they turn north, and they're going into modern-day Turkey. And we just kind of pick up the story midstream there. And we'll start in verse 14. We're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. It's a pretty lengthy passage, so we're all going to have to be adults and, and pay attention all the way through this passage as we read it together. I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. The title of the sermon is, These Are Given. So starting in Acts 13, verse 14. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to the people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul's son of Kish, Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it was written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. 
Now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We have to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy for eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth that is before us, this historical account of your mission going forward through your people. We confess this morning that we are also your people, Lord, and that we want your work to continue through us for the glory of Jesus. And we want you today to do what you want to do in us, that we might be transformed into the image of Christ and live for you and not for ourselves. So please, Lord, um, speak to us today through your word. Give us ears to hear. Help us to comprehend and to obey what is before us. And please, Lord, we ask together that you would help me to teach and to preach. I want to represent you rightly. I want to represent your word rightly. I want Jesus to be honored in our midst. So please, Lord, help me to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Well, uh, I know last week I started off with an introduction about some time I had spent at the beach with my family, and uh, I just can't get that day out of my mind. So here we go again. This last week, I was at the beach with my family and with another family from our church, the Summers family, and uh, we're just hanging out down there, and this girl comes walking onto the beach whom we've known for years. She was born and raised in Carpinteria just like I was. We've known each other since we were little kids. And she was with this guy whom I hadn't really seen before. And, you know, as soon as you see, like, a girl who, you know, is single with a guy, you just wonder, like, hey, is this, like, a thing or is this not a thing, right? You just wonder. Even some of you at church, I've seen you with someone, like, hey, is that a thing or is that not a thing? 
So my wife and I are like, hey, that's so-and-so. Look, look at that guy. Look at that guy. Wait a minute. Look at that guy. This guy was the most cut guy you have ever seen. He looked like a superhero. Like everything that was ever right about a superhero, he looked like. I'm just going to be honest. He had abs on his abs. I have no abs, and then I have flab on top of whatever is there. He had abs on abs and muscles on muscles and was built like this. Just he had like a perfectly trimmed beard and like perfectly quaffed hair and like his teeth were gleaming white and just and my friend Mike and I were like looking at this guy not like that I'm as straight as the day is long but we're just like he was amazing and so we start talking about, look at the guy, and oh my gosh, what, look at the guy. Could not get past this guy, even to this day, so I, I can't believe I'm talking about this right now. And, you know, I, what was going on is Mike and I were saying, like, dude, like, if I look like that guy, the things I would do if I looked like that guy, I would never wear a shirt if I looked like that guy which would be awkward for everyone on Sunday mornings, but I'm telling you, (laughs) and so I'm looking at his body, and I'll just be honest, I'll confess, I'm coveting, right? And I'm wishing I had that body. I know I will never have that body. I will never have that strength that was evident in his body. And I can't get it out of my mind how badly I want to look like him. And then this week I'm studying the text. And I'm struck by a different kind of strength that I see represented at the end of the text. This kind of strength. I realize that I actually truly want this kind of strength more than I want the strength that was represented by that guy. The last couple verses. Oh, I can't see it because the balloons. My goodness, it's going to be a hard Sunday. So they shook the dust off their feet and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. That kind of strength in my inner man, in truth, I desire more than what I saw on the beach that day. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I want to be that strong. More than I want to look like that guy, I want my life to look like this. They were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, it wasn't an easy gig for our little missionary band at this point. I mean, they were far from home. They had left home and whatever that was and all those things behind. They were working hard, as is evidenced by the text that we're reading so far. They're working hard in the mission of God. Don't forget that the Apostle Paul also kept a side job, and wherever he would go, he would engage in making tents and commerce and making money to support the mission. So they're working hard in the mission and to support the mission. They're far from home. They had sacrificed much. And on top of all that, they're experiencing this rejection and this persecution. 
And their own people, the Jews, are stirring up other people against them. Did you see that toward the end of the text? The Jews were jealous, and they're stirring up leaders within the community to come against and to work against what they're trying to do in the mission of God. And they've rejected them, and they're persecuting them. And yet it says at the end that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I want that kind of strength. I want my life to look like that. That phrase, filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, represents a deep, deep strength and quality. I want to be that strong when I'm tempted. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I want to be that strong when I'm disappointed. Anybody know disappointment? I want this sort of strength and quality in my life when I'm rejected. Who knows what it feels like to be rejected? And they were all those things. And yet the disciples, I believe because of this strength that they possessed, having been filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, that rejection that came their way, they were able, it says in verse 51, to just shake it off. Shake it off. This is where Taylor Swift got the song. This is where she got the song. I know Taylor. This is where she got it. They were able to just shake it off because of the strength that was evident in their lives. And here's what gives me hope about that. Here's why I'm hopeful. That guy on the beach, what he had, he had done for himself. He may have had some good genetics that were helpful in it, but it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, that guy's just born cut. Like, he had put in really hard work. It was very evidential. What that guy had, he had done for himself. But the text is about what God has done for us. That's why I'm hopeful. What he had, he had done for himself. But what the strength that is represented in this text is something that God has done for us. Because you cannot fill yourself with joy. You cannot fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. That Greek verb for fill is in the passive voice, which means that it's something that was done to the disciples. Something that was done for the disciples. God had filled them with joy. God had filled them with his spirit. This evidential strength in their life that allowed them to just shake it off and continue in the work was something that God had done for them. God had filled them with joy and God was filling them with his spirit. These are given. These are given. They're not self-made. They're not earned. These are given. God had given them joy and his spirit. So Paul and his little crew here are at the end of the chapter there experiencing what they preached. Now we like to say to people, practice what you preach. And that's fine unless you're a preacher. But I like the fact that Paul and his buddies, the disciples, are experiencing what they preached. 
that in Jesus there could be a different quality to life. This lasting, overarching joy, this being filled with God's Spirit and all that comes with that, they are experiencing what they preached. And here's why that's beautiful and here's why that it's important. We have to remember this. Christianity is not about what you can do for God. Christianity is about what God has done for you. That's very important. Christianity is not about what we can do for God. Christianity is about what God has done for us. It's important that we remember that in the book of Acts because the book of Acts is the historical account of God's people living out God's mission, doing God's work. So it's easy for us to begin to think in the study of the book of Acts that, well, that's the, sub, the, the substance of it all. And that's the whole of it all is we got to do God's stuff for God. And there is a way in which that's true, but that is not Christianity. That is not the thrust of the thing. That is not the heart of the matter. That is not the big picture. It's about what God has done for us. And Paul makes that clear in his sermon. We read his sermon again. And Paul gave a sermon because he was invited by the leaders of the synagogue to give a word of exhortation. We don't know why that happened. We don't know if he had some sort of reputation there. He was well-trained. We don't know if he had, you know, grabbed some guys before and said, hey, if there's a chance for me to say something. We don't know if it's just God's spirit moving upon the leadership. We don't know, but there was an open door. And, you know, Paul, Paul, I, I, I like Paul. There's an open door. And Paul says, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And he stands up and he goes, okay, listen. Uh, on the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue, synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent forth word, blah, blah, blah. I can't read it. Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation to the people, please speak. That's where we're at. So Paul begins to speak. As Paul speaks, I want you to remember what his goal is here and his mandate. It's the same as ours. His goal here, what he's aiming for, is to make disciples followers of Jesus. So in what he says here, I want us to catch that we see some of the quality, some of the essence of what makes disciples and so what disciples ought to be made of. So I want us to read again just the first part, just the first part of Paul's sermon. And I want us, as we look carefully at the words, to see if we can catch the thrust of it, what it's all about. I mean, it's pretty obvious by this point, but we, we have to answer the question, is Paul telling his audience about what they have to do for God, or is Paul telling his audience what God has done for them? So we're going to read through it again and highlight some key words, starting in verse 17. Paul says, The God of the people of Israel chose... Our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. 
Then the people asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, God made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Do you catch what's going on here? Do you catch what Paul is preaching about? Do you catch the thrust? All these key words. He says to the people, God is the one who chose our ancestors. And God is the one who prospered them, even in their slavery. And God is the one who delivered them and led them out. God endured their conduct. That's an important one. He overthrew the opposition. He gave them land. He gave them leaders. He gave them a good king. And then he brought them Jesus. This is really big. The story that is told here by Paul in this very strategic opportunity is about all the good stuff that God had done for them. The essence of the story, what he wants his audience to hear is, listen, God has been good to you and faithful to you. That's the essence of the story. I want us to hear that today on our 15th birthday, anniversary, whatever you want to call it, as a church. Because that's the essence of the story. God has, by grace, been good to us as a church, and God has been faithful. That is the story. That's the story that Paul is telling. He could have told a different story altogether, which would have also been true. He could have given them a retelling of all the ways that the people had failed God through those 450 years and beyond. And there were many. Who here has read the Old Testament? There were many innumerable ways that God's people had failed God through all of these things. That would also be a true story. And Paul could have told that story. And that's the same for our church. At 15 years, we could talk about all the ways that we have failed. In any way that a church could mess up, we have messed up. And that is also a true story. But this story, and our story, is a story of what God has done. The good things that God has done. This story, and our story, is a story that God has been faithful to really messy people. And so Paul says at the end of it here from verses 32 and 33, we tell you the good news. This is the good news. What God has promised, he has fulfilled for us. This is the good news. Notice that the good news was not this. Everything that you've done, God has taken note of, and he's going to deal with you accordingly. Good or bad, that's not the good news. He said the good news is about everything that God has promised and done, God has fulfilled for us. 
I want us to remember that the story of God being good and faithful and the story of God's people being bad and unfaithful are both true. And that they run throughout history concurrently. And they are actually happening in our lives concurrently. Both stories are true. But one story is ultimate. One story wins. The story of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Now, this is not some fluffy, seeker-sensitive, watered-down thing that Paul is giving here. He doesn't ignore human failure. In fact, he mentions it in a very poignant way. When he brings up human failure and sin, he goes pretty big on it. Remember, starting in verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham, you God-fearing Gentiles, it's to us that this message of salvation has been sent. But the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. Paul is no way denying human culpability as it pertains to sin. In fact, he goes right at the heart of it. Your people killed God in the flesh. That's the essence of sin, of which we are all guilty. Denial of God, of truth and righteousness, and a rejection of that. He doesn't hide this fact. He brings up their rejection. But I want you to notice how he transitions. The ultimate human failure, they killed Jesus. Represents all of our failures. And then I want you to notice how he transitions. He's going to say, after he says that, he's going to say these words, very important Bible words. Anytime you see these words in your Bible, you should highlight them. But God. Very important Bible words. Anytime you see these words in your Bible, you should highlight them. He does not hide. He says how bad the people are. But then he says in verse 30, but God raised Jesus from the dead. Both are true. One wins. One is ultimate. One reigns supreme. People are really bad. But God raised Christ from the dead. Here's why I'm excited about this, quite frankly, because like the people of Israel, my failures are many. My failures are many. And that could be the story. But I realize that there is a bigger story that God in his love is writing about our lives. And that this story of Jesus and what he's done for us, his death on the cross to pay the price for our sins, his resurrection from the dead that we might have life and new life, his current ruling and reigning, and his soon return to rule and reign on earth, that this story is bigger than my failures. And so today I want to encourage us as God's people to let all of our failures be subsumed by the story of what God has done for us. Yeah. 
And I want to offer to us this idea that, that we change the story that is shaping us if it's the story about our failures. We change the story, the dialogue, the narrative in our mind that is ruling us if it's a story about our failures. Again, that story is true, but we are given a better and ultimate story in what God has done. And every day in our lives, we have the opportunity to be shaped by story. And there is a horror story of our failures, but there is a better story of what God has done for us in Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. And this is a story that is meant to shape us and to rule us. This is part of the hope of the cross. We don't have to be shaped and, and ruled by our failures. We are not the sum total of all of our mistakes and our rebellion. The story of Jesus and what he's done for us. And here the conclusion of Paul's sermon so that we're helped to do this. He says in verses 38 and 39, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So we need to take this story of what God has done for us in Jesus, and we need to let this story shape our lives, rule in our hearts and minds, that we truly have the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's what I find myself doing. I find myself holding against myself what God has removed as far as the East is from the West. And that's just wrong. That's the wrong story. Yeah, I did it. Man, I did it a lot of times. Man, it was bad. Yeah, I'm still doing it. I find myself holding against myself what God is buried in the deepest sea. Holding over myself what was nailed to the cross and so taken out of the way. Covering myself with the shame of all that I've done when the Bible says I'm covered in the blood because of what God has done for us in Jesus. He says there, I love the language he chooses in verse 39, through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, you are set free from every sin. Every sin. We are free from the penalty of every sin. From the guilt and the shame of every sin. Every sin, every sin, every sin. But we are not only free from the guilt and the shame and the penalty of every sin, we are free from the power of every sin. Romans chapter 6 says that in Christ and our identification with him through faith, pictured by baptism, we are now dead to sin. Sin no longer has power over us. It is not this ultimate tyrant that controls us. That's not true of us anymore. We're resurrected with Christ. We're now dead to sin. We've been freed from the penalty of sin. Someone say amen. And we have been saved from the power of sin. From the power of sin. 
there is real hope in the Christian life to not live under the power of sin. That includes deeply ingrained generational handed down things. That includes a way the things that have been done to us are shaping us and causing us to act out. That includes things that we are outright truly addicted to. The power of Jesus is bigger than the power of those things. And he broke their ultimate power through his cross and his resurrection. So we have hope of a different existence. And we have through our faith in Jesus, Paul says here, justification that could not have been obtained through their observance of the Mosaic law. So what they were trying to do is they were trying to do things for God. Here's was the sum and the substance of their religion. We must do these things for God. And the expectation is if we do these things for God, well, then we'll have pleased God and then so God will whatever. Paul turns that on his head. He said, you now have a justification that you never could have obtained through the things that you abstained from or that you engaged in. To be justified means to be declared both innocent and righteous before God. Innocent and righteous before God. Paul tells us here you never could have earned justification. You know, it's generally the world thinks that we have to earn something before God, before the eternal, right? And generally people want to say, well, I think at the end my good is going to outweigh my bad. Well, the Bible just says that simply isn't true. There's nothing good we could ever do that is good enough for God. That's really bad news. But the good news is that's not what God is asking for us. The story is not what can you do for God. The story is what God has done for you. But it's weird. Even when we grasp that gospel idea, oftentimes as Christians, we still then come back under this yoke of what I ought to do for God. And here's what we do. We do this all the time. We project our ideas, our images, and our feelings on God. So we do really well, perhaps, and we feel really good about ourselves, and we project that on God, and we think, well, now God feels good about me. Do you know that you do that? You project the way that you feel on God, the way that you feel about yourself. That's how you imagine God feeling about yourself. May that be broken in the name of Jesus. Or we perform very poorly and we feel very bad about ourselves. And so we project that on God and we think, well, God must feel very bad about me now. Paul is telling us that the gospel has saved us from all of that. It is no longer about what you've done or failed to do. It is distinctly about what God has done for us in Jesus. And everything else needs to be subsumed into that story. Not only our failures, but also our successes. My friends like to tease me because, and my wife like, loves to tease me about this, because I'm a little bit extreme. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about me. <laughs> I don't really, like, have a middle ground. I'm like... The pendulum doesn't even swing. It just goes, just I'm on either end about everything that I do, right? I can't just do something like, oh, yeah, I'll just do that a little bit. I have to do it to the ultimate. Good, bad, fun, evil, whatever it is. Like, this is the way that I am. And I have found that people like me think way too much 
of our failures and way too much of our successes. And I have observed that to the degree to which you are ruined by your failures, that's the same degree to which you are self-pleased with your successes. God saves us from living like that by bringing us into this bigger, better story. Yes, that story of your failures and successes is true, but that's not the story. The story is what God has done for you, the good things that God has done for you, and how faithful God has been from you, so that it swings, it saves us, excuse me, from swinging from self-condemnation to self-glorification. Those are the areas where I live. I'm either the greatest human in the world, except for that guy with the beach body, or I'm the worst human in the world, except for you. It's sick, man. And so I, I, I appreciate the follow-up exhortation, right? Like Paul did all the preaching in the synagogue, but then I love that, that Barnabas comes along and does this little follow-up work. Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God, right? These people that are now like putting their faith in Jesus, Barnabas, the encourager, comes along and says, okay, now continue in grace, continue in grace, In other words, don't start to be overwhelmed by your failures. You are covered by the grace of God through the cross of Christ. And in other words, don't be so impressed with your successes. It's not about what you've done. It's about what God has done for you. All is by grace. If you have some great successes and you've done some good things, that is by grace. If you have great failures and you fail to do some things, you are covered by God's grace. Our standing before God is in grace. Barnabas comes along and says, continue in grace. That's an important word for us. We know that this relationship with God started in grace, but we often fall back into other ways of being. Continue in the grace of God as it pertains to our successes and our failures. So I'm hopeful this week because this story, the sermon that Paul gives, is not another story about what we have to do. It is the one about what has been done for us. And sometimes life gets so like crazy and messy that we lose clarity. And it can be hard for us to, to see the good things that God has done or is doing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And quite frankly, sometimes we forget the good things that God has done and is doing. And we might even, like in our times of difficulty and turmoil and bitterness of heart, we might even deny the good things that God has done and is doing. And what we need to do in those times is come back to the one thing that we cannot fail to see that we cannot possibly forget and that we cannot deny. That is the cross of Christ. In those times where the goodness of God seems obscured, we come back to the cross of Christ. It says in Romans 5, 8, that God has demonstrated his love for us in that we were sinners. He gave Christ to die for us. That is the demonstration of God's love. So when we begin to lose our way in this crazy life, and we all will, and the goodness of God seems obscured to us, we have to, through some discipline, 
someone else encouraging us, going to Scripture, listening to truth in our minds, in our hearts, whatever it is, we have to go back to the cross where the love of God for us and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God was demonstrated once and for all. And there's nothing that we ought to look to subsequently for God to prove his goodness again. That's a grievous error. Yeah, I see the cross, but God, if you would just give me a body like that. Yeah, I see the cross, but God, if you would just... Yeah, I see the cross, but if you would just... Now listen, here's what responsible Christianity does. I see the cross. It is enough for me, God. I see the cross. It is enough for me, God. You demonstrated your love for me and that while I was yet a sinner and a rebel against you, you gave Christ to die for me. There's nothing God could ever do to prove his love for you any further. And so in times, we need to take our greatest failures to the foot of the cross. We need to take them right there. You can do that today. In a real like visual way, you know, he's given us the Lord's Supper. Like you, you could come with your greatest failures and confess them to the Lord. And you could, you could take his body and his blood in you and remember that you are forgiven. We've got to bring our greatest failures to the foot of the cross. And then also I would say, we have to bring our greatest successes to the foot of the cross. Because the cross is the bigger, truer, greatest story. And all of our failures and all of our successes are seen correctly at the foot of the cross. What happens to the failures? They're removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. God chooses to remember them no more. And what happens to our great successes at the foot of the cross in light of what God has done for us and Jesus and his love for us, all we could ever say at most is, all is by grace. Thank you, God. Now, I'll finish with this desire I expressed at the very beginning. Not the one for the body, the one for this. So they shook the dust off their feet, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Again, we realize that these are given. They're from God. And they're not from God for the disciples 2,000 years ago. They're from God for you today. They're from God for you today. I think we can lay hold of that pretty easily as it pertains to a theology of the Spirit, which we have at this church, and we've talked a lot about being filled with the Spirit, and we have to continually be filled with the Spirit, asking God to fill us with our Spirit in different, different needs and seasons and times and opportunities. We've talked a lot about that. But it can be a little harder to wrap our minds around, like, God, I need you to fill me with joy, but this is a promise of Scripture. Look what Jesus said. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. The only way our joy is ever made full is when Jesus' joy gets in us. What was Jesus talking about in John chapter 15? He was talking about us abiding in him. It's the story of the vine and the branches. These things about you staying connected to me, Jesus is saying, these things about you drawing your life from me as the source, I have told you these things that my joy might be in you. Because if he's the vine and we're the branches, then that joy that is inherently in him comes into us. Jesus is perfect. Jesus has perfect joy. No-brainer. 
He wants us to experience his joy. Paul prayed this for the church in Rome. He said, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy. Look at that phrase. What a prayer today that we could be praying for ourselves and for each other and for others. Man, what a beautiful prayer. I pray that God would fill you completely with joy. You notice that it's a God thing here? We know how to create happiness temporally, some lasting stuff. We, we know as people how to get to happiness. But this joy thing, this is a God thing. And it's good if you're hungering for it today because God has it for you today. It's a supernatural thing that God wants to do in our lives. So this needs to become the prayer of the church today. That God would fill us completely with joy and peace. That's good too. It's like peanut butter and jelly. You want those together. Joy and peace. Because you trust, I can't see it, because you trust in him, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see there that there's a connection between God's spirit and joy for God's people? In fact, the New Testament has this phrase, the joy of the Holy Spirit for believers. The joy of the Holy Spirit for believers. Remember from Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is the second one. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, what God is working in us by His Spirit through His power, what He's trying to knead into, draw out of, get in us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is the second one. God wants to work this in us. And then I love what was told to Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the strength I want. That's the strength I want. The joy of of the Lord is your strength. So I encourage us this morning to press into the Lord by remembering the great story of his goodness toward us and his faithfulness toward us. To really press into that story this morning. You have another story that is also true. But this is the bigger, better, ultimate story. That you are loved by God. God has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west and he's given you new life in Jesus. Maybe today that needs to become your story. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Today is the day to do it. You just confess in your heart, Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner, that you're the savior, that you paid the price for my sins on the cross. Please forgive me of my sins and give me new life. God will do that for you today. That becomes your story now forever. That is your story. You're the beloved of God, forgiven. So what story is ruling you today? Today, deal with that. Make sure it's the right story. And then pursue the story continually, Christians. Pursue this story. You know, the other story is always in front of us. It's always in front of us. When we look in the mirror, sometimes that's the only story that we see. When we hear people's words reverberated back at us, sometimes that true bad horror story of our lives is all that we hear. So you need to pursue this true story of what God has done for you because he loves you. You need to pursue it. You need to have rhythms and practices that bring you back into that story. Rhythms and practices that bring you back into that story. John 16, Jesus said, until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Ask God today for these things because these things are given. And so they must be received. 
God, fill me with your joy. God, give me the right story. God, fill me with your spirit. And I'll finish. Notice the second time I said I'll finish. That's an old preacher trick. I have to be true to the context with that last little part. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I won't belabor it. I'll just say this. I want you to notice that they experienced that as they were living into God's purposes. I'll say it differently. They experienced this joy and this fullness of the Spirit not because they were living for themselves, but because they were living for God. And I don't know if we ever receive these things that are given if and when we live for ourselves. And that's not then to turn it on its head and say, oh, see, it's earned. Now you're telling me again what I must do. No, it's a correct understanding of grace. Grace enables us to live into the purposes and the story of God. It does not dismiss us from it. Grace enables us to live into the purposes and the story of God. It does not dismiss us from it. This is the effects of grace in their lives. They lived into God's purposes. And I, I find that I often buy the lie. I've said this several times in the last few months that if I just close down and live for myself and not so much for God or serving others, that I'll somehow be happier and more whole then. Well, that's just a lie from Satan. We'll never experience these things that are given. We'll never receive these things that are given if, if the tone and the tenor of our lives revolves around ourselves. They experienced this when they were living for God. They did this because the grace of God had been brought to them through what Jesus did for them because God loved them so overwhelmingly. May we live the same way and so experience that strength of life. Thank you, God, for the gift of joy in the Holy Spirit and for the person and the work of the Spirit. We say together as your people, as a church, at 15 years, that we want these things, that we need these things. And so today, Lord, as best we know how now, we're going to just respond to your word. We're going to come forward and take communion together. We're going to take postures of worship and kneel and bow and going to pray together because that's what your people do prayer team is up here and as we respond we just expect god that you're going to move by your spirit and respond you know what everyone has need of and you know what we need as a church thank you for these that are given may we be those that receive by grace all that you have for us may we not live short of those things not try to move beyond them. God, we want everything that you have for us. Nothing less and nothing more. Come, Holy Spirit.